Hey, my name is Devin Miller, and I'm here to inspire you to go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profits. Welcome to the Go Big to Get Big podcast, where we are challenging six-figure earners to become seven-figure givers. My name is Randy Mullen, and each week, my co-host Steve Arneson and I are interviewing successful entrepreneurs, professional athletes, philanthropists, and other high-performing humans that are inspiring us with their stories. We go deep into uncovering how they have become successful and why generosity is an impact they want to leave on this world. Our mission is to have you leave this podcast wanting to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. Before we get started today, though, this is a quick reminder that we are launching our Go Big to Give Big membership. If you are looking to get around people that are more excited about talking about the impact they are making in this world more than the cars they are buying, then you're going to want to go check out GoBigToGiveBig.com to get more information and join the most philanthropic group of entrepreneurs out there. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back to another episode. And today we have an incredible guest, Devin Miller from Miller IP Law. Devin, thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, excited to be here and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun uh, conversation. I don't think we've had any lawyer in general, let alone IP and startup, which is such a really incredible space to be in. And there's so much different conversation around it because it's not just your typical lawyer jogging. You can talk a lot to actual startup businesses and going bigger and everything around that. But for some of our audience who maybe haven't heard your story before, why don't you share a little bit of your background? It's kind of crazy. You have four different types of degrees and your journey to get here is pretty incredible. So why don't you share a little bit of that with our audience? Absolutely. And that's a whole uh, journey in, or episode in and of itself, but I'll try and keep it to a reasonable amount so it uh, doesn't overwhelm anybody. But no, I Kind of giving you a, a bit of a backstory. So kind of starting at the college at the time frame. So I ended up getting four degrees, which my wife always jokes is three degrees too many. So for <laughs> undergraduate, I ended up getting a electrical engineering degree as well as a Mandarin Chinese degree. And then for graduate school, I ended up getting a MBA degree as well as a law degree. And they're kind of the path that I ended up taking. And so I got towards the end of undergraduate. I did Mandarin Chinese. And a part of that was I served a religious mission for my church. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over in Taiwan. So I started picking up the language there and it was, you know, reasonably fluent. Basically, I came back and said, hey, why don't I just add it on as a second degree and, and pursue that as well? So my main focus was electrical engineering. But as I was coming out of undergraduate and kind of looking at job prospects and what I wanted to be when I grow up, kind of looking at electrical engineers. And the problem was, is that they're typically a small cog in a big wheel. You know, they work on a small portion of a big project. They typically, until you get pretty far into your career. You don't have a lot of input or say, and I just didn't want to do that. That wasn't the direction I wanted to go. And so I said, okay, well, what can I do? I still like engineering. And so I said, well, I like, you know, business side and I kind of find startups and small businesses to be interesting. I also find the legal side of intellectual property with patents and trademarks and working with a lot of startups and small businesses. I basically split it down the middle, went, went for both. And so I uh, went and got the MBA degree and a law degree at the same time. And then really since then, I basically split my career the same way. So I've been a intellectual property attorney um, for about 10 years now, started my own firm about four years ago. And then alongside of that, I've also loved to pursue the startup side. So I've done, I'd have to count now three or four, five, I don't know, something like that startups that I like to do alongside of that. So I've kind of always chased both of those throughout my career. 
as well as having a, a family of four with the oldest is a son and then three girls, which are seven to 12. So between all that, tend to keep pretty busy. Busy life, man. And some really incredible stuff. I love that, you know, you've kind of just been all in on everything that you're doing and where you're going. And one of the things that I read about you is that your dad was in startups as well. So I'm just curious, you know, was your dad an influence on some of the space of like, was he very educated and proficient in the startup space that drove you to that direction? Or was there somewhere along the lines? Like, how was that relationship with your dad? Yeah, no, have a great relationship with my dad. I would say yes and no. So in the sense that I watched him and he has a, a couple degrees, but he has electrical engineering degree as well. So, you know, I'm sure had an impact. I don't remember exactly how I landed on it, but I'm sure that that had an overlay of that uh, impact on it. But, you know, I always could kind of watch and he didn't do as outright his own startup for most of his career. He did later on, but he also worked for a lot of startups. He did that. So I kind of got that perspective. Never really got into it like while I was a kid or never really do it. So I was always kind of watching from the sidelines. But later on, one of the startups that I did that uh, was in actually while well, I was doing the law degree and the MBA degree, this is a sudden stage, I was doing law degree, MBA degree, working 20 hours as a law clerk. I had a two-year-old and a newborn. And then I decided to do a startup at the same time. And it was in the wearables industry. And that was one that my dad actually worked on it with me. It was kind of in the wearables, medical device realm. He'd done for a large part of his career, a lot of medical devices. So I basically said, hey, I've got this great idea. Don't really know how to do it. And so, hey, any thoughts or ideas of how to get started? And when I went back over Christmas, I remember we uh, got down on the workbench. He helped me design it. We were working on it. And we kind of came up with that initial prototype. So different uh, aspects along the journey. He's been involved and he's still involved. And I go out to weekly lunch with him and sometimes we'll chat business. Sometimes we'll just chat live. And But uh, always been a, a great impact on a lot of what I've done. That's awesome. Oh, I'm trying to decide the direction I want to go with this. There's so many, there's so much to unpack, just in even that one sentence that you just shared there. Have you always been driven and motivated? Like, I'm just very fascinated by the fact that you're doing two degrees and working while doing a family. Like most people choose one or the other. So in the context of, you know, going big, you are the definition of you just went all in and are going big and going after it. Is that something you've always done? Or walk us through a little bit of the mindset that it takes to be able to accomplish those degrees while working and managing a family and building the business. You know, I don't know that it was ever intentional. It wasn't like I said, oh, I'm going to be all in or I'm going to go big. It was just like, hey, I enjoy this. I'll do this. And I enjoy that. And I'll do that. It just kind of was probably a much more of a natural progression. So I, you know, family was always important to me. Got married when I was an undergraduate and I had my wife and we wanted to have kids. And so that was always an aspect that I wanted to be in. And then I wanted to study. And my kind of philosophy on the educational side is, hey, if I'm going to be in school, I might as well pack in as much as I can while I'm there. So that's why I did the dual degrees both times in undergraduate and graduate school was not because I love school and everybody, you know, I always have to laugh at people. Oh, I'm not a student. I just don't like, so I'm like, I don't like to study either. It's not like <laughs> it was fun or enjoyable or excited me, but I figure if I'm going to be there, I'm getting to be, you know, putting in my effort, I might as well pack in as much as I can and get as much experience. And so, you know, that was kind of the theme that I, you know, a lot of it is I always just, am, you know, I like to stay busy. I like to do things. It's not like I'm looking just to try and keep myself busy. I just naturally kind of gravitate towards that. And then I always, you know, find things that I find interesting. And then I, I end up jumping into those. So, you know, done a food truck and wearables done lead generation have a hobby orchard, done the intellectual property, have a podcast, have my kids support all their events. I'm on the planning commission for our local, you know, for our community. And I just kind of said, hey, it's these things come up. 
I could either have hobbies that are outside of this, or I can make these my hobbies. And I usually just make the, you know, the things that are tend to be on the business side, the family side, that my hobbies and then go from there. Well, whatever go juice you're drinking, can you please share some? Cause <laughs> I, I need a hit of that, but I'm wondering, like, did you ever get like the, the chat with from your parents around the, Hey, go to school and like have a fallback because knowing that your dad was more on the entrepreneurial side or, you know, in combination of, but. You know, it was encouraged to go to school. So I, I don't know that it was ever outright a conversation like, hey, you're going to college. But I think it was always kind of just that built in expectation. So mm-hmm. my dad had gone to college. My mom had gone to college. My relatives had gone to college. Grandpa had gone to college. Like everybody in the family got to college. So it wasn't like it was expected like, hey, you have to go to college. But it was just kind of built in that, hey, that's what you do after college or after high school. And it made sense to me. And I wanted to set myself up for a good career good path. And so I don't know that I ever looked at it as a fallback, you know, all of the degrees I've got, you know, with the exception, maybe of Mandarin, I don't know what I would fully do if I did a business or a career around that. And I could probably figure something out, but I always looked at, these are all good, they're good degrees in and of themselves. Logical engineering degree, there's always demand for that. MBA, you can always go get something business related. Lawyers are typically in demand, especially on the intellectual property side. So I don't know that it was ever hey, I've got to have a fallback or I've got to do it, but hey, why don't I set myself up? So kind of no matter what I do, I'll always have those options to pursue something that will I'll enjoy as well as provide opportunities. So I'm curious, like, do you think that there is an element of formal education that assists or manufactures more entrepreneurs And what I mean by that for context, it's more so like on the go big side of things, like to be able to propel yourself and your business forward, how essential do you think like university or college is? It's a fair question. I don't know. Cause I, so I, I've worked with in my career now, hundreds of startups at this point. So I've got a insight as to what they've done. And I don't know that there's a lot of commonality in in the sense I've seen people that have gone right out of high school, started their own business. I've seen, you know, people go to tech training, seen people go to college now, you know, do I want my kids to go to college? Yeah, because I think that there's a couple of things that I think are helpful. One is to, I think that college in a sense, and not just college, you can get it other places, but instills in you, you have to have a degree of work ethic to make it through college. In other words, if you're going to go, you're going to get a degree, you're going to put in four or five years, or in my case, nine and a half years and go through all that you by definition have to have a level of determination they're going to get through it. Otherwise you're going to not going to make it. So I don't know that that is because you go to college, but it's a people that go to college, maybe have a bit higher degree just because it naturally weeds them out. And so people that are more naturally driven, make it through the program. People that maybe aren't as driven may not make through the program. So I don't know that college infuses that now. You know, ironically, I have four degrees and I would say about half of college or half of my you know education was useful and the other half was fluffy. And I wish I could cut out the fluffy half that I really didn't need and, uh, you know, and replace that with business things. But, you know, I think that's probably a combination. So I give you a background, not the asset question, but one of the startups that I'm doing right now, and we're actually getting ready to launch two or three weeks out, um, is a food truck. And we've been working on it for several months now. And, you know, it kind of seems weird that a electrical engineer attorney done medical devices is doing a food truck when, you know, I always think it kind of sounds like fun. But the reason that I picked that was because I wanted to give my kids an opportunity to start doing business related activities on an early age. And so that's why they've already been involved. They've helped me build the food truck. We've talked about it. We strategize. They've helped do the logo. They're going to work in it. 
And so I think that it's kind of that marrying the combination of getting those opportunities or, or having those opportunities presented throughout your life and probably making it through and setting it up that you have the background to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the best answer I got. No, I appreciate it. And I think the other thing to compliment that is the network that comes from it. You're side by side with, you know, a group of 40, 50, 100 people or whatever that might be. And you never know where they're going to go. And it's not what you know, it's who you know, or a combination of. But on the intellectual property side of things, what does the average entrepreneur need to know about IP? Yeah, I mean, I think the first place to start is what is IP or what is intellectual property? So maybe this is a quick level set just for the audience to kind of give you an idea as what it is. So when you hear intellectual property, it's really an umbrella term. So it kind of encapsulates three things. So patents, trademarks, and copyrights all fall under intellectual property. So somebody says intellectual property, they can mean one, all three, or any of the above. Now, if you were to break that down, you say, okay, now what are each of those? So patent is really something that goes towards protecting an invention. So something that has a functionality, it does something, you can get a patent on it. So you can have exclusivity that as you're putting in your time, money, and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, you can protect all of that, that investment. Trademarks are going to go towards brands. And so if you're looking at trademarks, if you wanted to, or if you're starting a company and it was, you know, you're building a brand and you wanted to protect the name of the company or the product or a catchphrase or a logo. Those all fall under trademarks. Copyrights are going to be on the creative nature. So you could look at, you know, if it's a book, it's a painting, a sculpture, a movie, a, all those type of things all fall under creatives and under copyrights. And so the, you know, now to your question, which is, you know, what should businesses know? I, I would look at the first thing you need to figure out with your business is where is your value? So in other words, hey, you know, if I'm going to invest in my business is that I'm going to build a really great brand. I'm going to be the next Pepsi or Coke or M&M or you know, whatever that is, Apple or that, and I'm going to be a great branding company. And that's what people are going to know me for. If that's the case, then you tend to say, well, then I'm investing in a brand. I'll get a trademark. But on the other hand, you're going to build any next great, you know, invention. You're going to go out and be like Henry Ford and, you know, figure out how to make great automobiles and make them in mass production. Or you're going to be the Harley Davidson and you're going to create a new motorcycle out of a bike, or you're going to be the next Steve Jobs and you're going to create a new iPhone. You know, any of those are all of the above. Then you're going to say, really, we're a products company and that's where we focus on. So I think that long answer to a short question is when you're looking at what you should know is step back, say, where is the value of our business? And then how are we going to protect that investment? It's a great answer. To go even one further from that, at what point do you have to start making these decisions? So you have some ideas and concept and you've got a brand that's just like go big to get big for an example. And we're like, hey, nobody else has used this term. It's kind of ours. We've got the incorporations for the companies and stuff like that. At what point should we start looking at getting some of the maybe trademarks on it or something like that, that allows us to own the rights more to it versus it just being a company or brand that we have? Yeah, I mean, the, the shortest answer is earlier, the better is almost always the case with intellectual property. In other words, the way that it's generally set up, particularly with patents and trademarks, is the first person to file for it is in, always in the best position. So as an example, you to say, go big to give big, you know, that one, if you're to go and say that is the name of the podcast, or, you know, you're doing training and materials, and let's say you had a great line of swag, and you went and did books and you did seminars and all these things. Well, you're investing a considerable amount of time, money, and effort, marketing, dollars, building, and everything else. And so the question is, is now what's going to stop someone from coming along and saying, give big to go big, or, you know, switching it around a little bit or or changing it up, and what's going to protect you from doing that? Well, you have 
you know, certainly you built a brand and a following and they're going to know that, you know, they're going to know where you guys are at and how to find you. But if you're trying to now build it into new markets, the question is, if there's another brand that's out there that's really similar to what you're doing, if you don't have a trademark, if you don't have a something to protect it, or if it was an invention, a patent, then you're going to largely be out of luck. Now, you have some limited rights, you have some limited avenues, but it's going to be fairly difficult. The rule of thumb that I usually give, which is the best rule of thumb I can give, is if, if your business is getting to the point that there's an ouch factor. So in other words, if you know, if it was an example, your brand, and some of you to come along and they're to knock off your brand, they're to copy it, and you say, eh, you know, that's annoying. I'm not really happy about it, but it's not that big of a deal. We can pivot the brand, we can adjust, or you know, we really don't have that big of a following. We don't have that much of an investment. Yeah, we're not happy about it, but it doesn't really hurt. Then you're probably early enough on, you don't have to worry about it as much. On the other hand, you're saying, no, man, if somebody came along and just knocked us off and started competing directly, that's going to hit our bottom line. That's going to hit all of the work that we've done and everything else. Then you're probably getting to the point where it has that ouch factor where, yeah, it hurts a company. And when you're approaching that point is the best time to really dive into it and make sure that you have things in place. I know one of the things that you kind of are trying to support with is as startups, you know, capital and funding is one of the hardest things to get. So I think that's why a lot of people put off a lot of these IP stuff is because it's like, hey, do I want to pay the bills or do I want to get a trademark? It becomes these tough situations. So financially, just walk us through some of the process of thinking around that, of what the investments, I don't want to say like how much should somebody pay, but around some of those decisions early on of like going with a bigger firm versus going with someone like yourself that maybe can be somewhere in the middle or help get some of that done for a little bit more of a uh, cost-effective method. Really great questions. I'll try and hit on as many as I can think of. <laughs> I mean, so I'll, I'll hit on maybe the last one that I remember first, which is, yeah. you know, you, you talk about big law firms versus little law firms. The plus of a big law firm is they generally have a, there's a reason why they have a good reputation, not always, and there's still the exceptions. Big law firms still have crappy attorneys sometimes, but overall, they generally have a good reputation. They have good quality. And so, you know, th and that's the same thing why you go buy an Apple phone versus a no-name phone. You know that the Apple phone is going to be nice and you don't know. The other phone may be awesome and it may be great and maybe every bit is good, but you don't know the quality. And so, you know, now on the other hand, you buy the Apple phone versus a knockoff phone, you're going to pay a whole lot more for the Apple name and the, that branding and behind it than you are the knockoff. And so that's, you know, kind of when you look at the same thing with law firms, you know, I'm obviously biased towards small law firms, but, you know, if I just take a step back and say, as a business, what would I do? I think it requires you to do a bit more homework. You have to actually, rather than just rely on the reputation of the big law firm that, you know, can stamp their name on it and everybody knows who it is and probably has a, a good quality to it, small law firms can give you every bit as good a quality at a more competitive price. A lot of times, I think they give you a better product because they give you more one-on-one -on -one attention. They know where you're at. They have better processes in place and they're set up, especially like as an example, most big law firms are set up for big businesses. They don't really help the small, they, they'll take you on as a client if you want to pay them, but they're not really set up to help the startups and the small businesses to the same degree. And so that's why, you know, I would generally say go with a small law firm if you're looking for a better budget, but make sure you do a good due diligence, look into them, make sure that they have a good product. Now, kind of me. And to your other question, I think, is, you know, if you're looking at for investment is kind of what do these things cost? You know, if you're to look at a patent to get all the way through the process, you're probably 15,000 spread over two to three years. 
you know, to get started on the process, you can go anywhere from a couple thousand if you're really early on up to six or 7,000 if you're kind of getting more serious about it out of the gate. And I'm assuming there's a difference between like patenting a pencil sharpener versus patenting like a new battery technology for Tesla. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I mean, it depends on where you go. So like, as an example, we do flat fees on basically everything we do. So honestly, you pay this the same amount whether you do the pencil sharpener or the new battery. But the reason is, is generally you're going to have a lot of the same overlay and work, no matter how complex or how simple it is, you still have to have drawings in place. So give you an example, let's say the pencil sharpener. Does it matter the angles of the blade that you're, you're setting the, the blades at, or can it be at any angle? Do you need to have it a certain size? Does it need to be a certain hole? Can it be variable holes? How do you convey that? Does the material of the blade or the part pencil sharpener is made out of? So there's a lot that you can go into that. And that's generally, you're going to want to dive into that deeper level because it's a simpler invention. And you sometimes, well, this is a simple invention. Simpler inventions also means it's more likely that there's something more similar out there that has already been done. And so you're going to want to drive in a lot of that detail and that information to make sure that you capture it what makes you unique and different. So, you know, first, is it complexing? It's nice that it's complex, but then you almost have the opposite. If you make it so complex and you try and dive in so deeply, then you're so narrow that it makes it easier to design around and then it makes it easier so for someone else to create. So you end up kind of having different trade-offs, but you generally, the cost, you know, some law firms will split it out. We don't, you know, split it out by, you know, the type of invention and that, but honestly doing it for a long time, I look at it and say, Within a pretty good threshold, you're going to be doing 80, 90% the same work, whatever the invention is, and that other 10, 15%, we're just going to say it comes out in the average. Wow. You got this so dialed in. And so I just love the way you explain things. It just feels very much like you know exactly what you're talking about. You've done this a, a million times. And I find that very fascinating because a lot of times you sit down and talk to a lawyer and it's a lot of lawyer jargon that you don't really understand. And you're like, this makes no sense. And they come out with a number and it's like, this is why. And you're like, well, how does that even make any sense? I don't know what's going on. So I think you have a gift for explaining this stuff and making it very simple. So kudos to you, man. That's a huge feature to be able to explain this in a way that you have. First of all, thank you for the compliment, whether it's warranted or not. But, you know, I can go down the legal jargon. I can talk about, hey, what's the difference between a 102 and a 103 rejection for a patent application? Nobody other than the attorney is going to care what that is. Now you want to know what it is, what it means in plain speak. But I always look and said, hey, if I'm talking to a startup or a small business, first of all, I've been through it and I know where they're at, but I'm going to explain it to a level that they're going to understand And Not that I have to dumb it down, but I have to explain it differently when you talk to another attorney. Versus, a, you know, someone that's a non-legal person, just like if an engineer talks with another engineer versus someone else that's not an engineer, you're going to talk differently. And so I always kind of look at it. I say, hey, if I can explain it to my wife, which is a non-attorney, non-engineer, and she can understand it, then I've probably hit that right level. And so I always try and strive to, to break it down so that it makes sense to everybody, not just to the attorneys in the room. That's amazing. I love that. The last question I have before we move on to the giving round is just, you've seen a lot of startups, you've touched a lot of startups. What's the one thing that people need to be aware of on the good or one thing people need to be aware of on the bad? So one thing that you'd give advice for like, hey, don't do this. And one thing you'd give for advice for, hey, go do this. Yeah, I don't know which one I'll hit first. So, I mean, so the general advice of what I would do, but it kind of also it flips around to what I would <laughs> do. So I'll, I'll put it in the what I would do column which is, you know, generally when you're a startup or a small business, I completely get it. You always have more things to spend money on than money to spend. And you're always trying to figure out where you put that budget. 
And so legal oftentimes, kind of as you guys alluded to earlier, gets kind of pushed down later on the someday pile that we'll get to it. And I fully understand if I had to make the decision between making payroll or getting a product out or go getting a trademark, I would get the product out first because it's great if you have a trademark. If the business goes under, it doesn't really give you any value. But on the flip side, you do need to have a plan for when you should start to attack these things. So it's not forever in the someday pile and you don't get three or four or five years down the road and you get that cease and desist letter from someone else because you've really been infringing their brand for all this time and you never knew it. Now you put all this time, money, and effort and it's going to be a much bigger pain to try and have to adjust and evolve or same thing on inventions or that. So I would say, you know, get a plan, understand what milestones or the trigger points should be when you should start really engaging these things seriously and then get to work. And then when you get to that milestone, you get to that trigger point, then you engage and you start to do it. So you're not going to kill the business on the front end, but you're not waiting and, and setting up problems on the long end. So that's probably what I would do. As far as things that I wouldn't do, I'll go with more on the personal side. I think you need to find a balance. You know, all in doesn't mean that you never see your family, you never see your kids. And that was kind of something it took me a while on my career, and I don't know that I'm perfect at it. I work very hard at it. But, you know, I would oftentimes, especially when I was, and my wife will attest to this, and she says she didn't see me when I was in school for most of the time, you know, I would be all in on doing school and studying and that. And she had to do a lot of raising the kids and a lot of that extra work. Now, balance it out. And now that I've you know, in a different spot, I a lot more involved. But I think that so too often you get with, especially with the startup small business, you have a lot of fires to put out and every fire seems like it's urgent. You have to get it put out today and family or religion or hobbies or other things always kind of get pushed down because they're not the fire that has to be put out today. So at least for me, avoiding not or pushing those out so far and figuring out how you can get that balance, it's going to set it up for a long-term being a lot more successful and having a lot more enjoyable life. You very excellent points of advice, Devin. Thank you. Absolutely. I know you do some cool stuff with the youth, whether that be your own kids or kids in the community, transitioning to like the component that we perhaps love even more than business, which is, you know, giving back and making sure that our communities are seen, loved and heard and that everybody's getting some attention. Walk us through what you do with kids and why that's beneficial. Yeah. So I'd say there's kind of two main areas of, of our giving, you know, for me and my wife, you know, we do everything together on that front. One is we just, you know, every paycheck, we donate uh, 10% to our church. So we do it via tithing. And so we'll pay on that one. We'll also a lot of times donate it above and beyond for other things as well. And so that one, I don't want to dismiss it because while it's a something that is a routine, I still think it's important and it sets the right stage for giving. The other thing that we've done that's, you know, on a bit more of a personal level that we've evolved into with as a family is so one, let me back up. One of the things that I hate doing is I see a person that is homeless or along the street. I don't like giving them cash. And it's not that I don't want to help them out or I don't want to support them, but I don't know what they're going to do with that. And, you know, cash, you can go do anything from buy a hamburger at McDonald's. You can go buy drugs. You can go buy alcohol. You can go do other things and you can do it for a lot of good things. And it can also be for a lot of bad things. So I just always felt like, you know, in one sense, I feel guilty. I'm not supporting them or helping or those type of individuals out that are struggling. But by the same token, I don't want to support a habit that I disagree with. So kind of always struggled with that. And then, you know, several years ago, and I don't remember how we came up or how it started basically. So we started out and it's kind of evolved over it. So we initially started out, it was just me and my wife and said, Hey, you know, 
I think we heard it from someone else. Maybe it was online. Maybe it was in church. I don't remember. That was doing what they call homeless bags. And we picked it up. Basically, it was, hey, whenever, you know, you have pre-ready made bags. And so we would go and we, me and my wife started out just doing it. We would, you know, donate so much each month to basically and or go and buy the stuff. So we would buy socks. We would buy uh, McDonald's gift cards. We would buy shampoo and we would buy soap and we would buy, you know, a, a myriad of different things. And then at Christmas, we'd buy blankets and we'd buy other things. And so we kind of do it based on their needs. But we would go and make those bags and then we would just simply put them in the vehicle, put them in the car. And then every time we would see someone that needed one, we would have it there and we could give it out. And so it made it a lot more fun, a lot more rewarding, but it also felt like, hey, we're actually helping them and these are things that they need. As that evolved, kind of, you know, as or we said, okay, now how do we help our kids to participate in this? Because up until this point, they like giving them out, but they weren't really participating. And so we shifted it a little bit into where... Now, at the beginning of each month, we say, hey, as a family, we're going to donate so much. So each individual, we don't have any criteria as to how much you give. You can give zero dollars. If you don't feel like giving, you can give all the money in your piggy bank. Although I probably would tell our kids not to give all their money away <laughs> quite yet. But, you know, and, and so each of us will basically the first of each month or as we get together as a family, we'll each say, OK, it's time for you guys to decide how much to give. And everybody will go to their wallets or the banks or the piggy banks or whatever and they'll get a given amount, however much they feel like giving, and we'll all put it basically into the pot. And then we will then use that money to go out and we now involve the kids. So they'll go out, they'll help us figure out, they each could pick out their own items. So sometimes the kids will pick out a can of Lay's and other times they'll pick out gloves and other times they'll pick out socks, other times they'll pick out scarves, but they get to be involved kind of each step. So now they're actually giving, they are learning at an early age that the, you know, giving a portion of the money that they're earning is great. They get to participate in what we put in our homeless bags, and then they get to participate when we give them out. So that's kind of been our main family giving thing is really something that is pretty rewarding as well as uh, letting uh, the whole family be involved. I love that concept. And just out of curiosity, like, how has that changed for your kids in the interaction they have with homeless people? And I'm asking this because a lot of people treat homeless people like they're scared of them and stay away and and kind of stay shy from them. And it sounds like you're giving them an opportunity to kind of build a little bit of a relationship in a healthy manner with them. And just curious, you know, have you seen that change in your kids and how do they feel about them? Yeah, no, I would say so. Now, I still get nervous in some locations and some areas. It's not like we go <laughs> anywhere course. and just take the kids to the worst part of downtown and, you know, we're all nervous. But, you know, I think that is also overcoming a bit of a stigma. There's a lot of other opportunities where it's not that dangerous thing. And I think that's the first thing that comes to people's mind. But when you kind of walk down that path, one of the things that we did recently for this Christmas is we kind of went with bigger bags. And so we said, hey, you know, we're going to basically kind of give them, it's still useful things, but we got them nicer blankets. We got them coats. We got them, you know, more food. We got them some other Christmas presents. And they all the kids wrote them a note and drew them a picture. But then we actually went down and at least where I'm located, which is just outside of Salt Lake City, there's kind of different encampments where they tend to congregate during the winter because it's cold and they kind of a lot of times will pull resources. And so we went out and we, you know, parked the van and uh, we actually just went out and we didn't have enough for everybody because there was there were too many there. But we would go and find different people that we would give it to and each kid would grab their own bag and they'd walk up and they talk with them and hand it to them and us as a parent would be there so they wouldn't get too scared and they would also they got nervous or they didn't know what to say that we could help them out but it kind of said that or stage for we are helping them out and it, this is somebody that's in need and 
We don't know what their life story is. We don't know what brought them here. We don't know where they're at, but we can still be nice. We can be friendly with them and we can help them out. So it's been a, a good experience that the kids have been able to actually go up, talk with them, give them gifts, see where they're at, see what they're going on with their lives. And that they're still, while they're struggling with things in their lives, there's still people that need to be cared for and need to be are loved as well. It's beautiful, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, here's a chance for you to brag on yourself a little bit. What's a moment of like one of your top favorite moments of giving that when you think back onto it, still kind of like is a bit of a tearjerker or pulls at the heartstrings? Doesn't have to be the biggest check, but the one that maybe means the most to you. I'll give you two. I'll give you my worst experience with giving and then I'll give you my best just because the worst one's kind of funny. So I, I already hit on the one that probably the, the one that's, you know, the most near and dear to my heart, which was this last Christmas when I got the opportunity to go out. It's fine. I said, we went to all a dollar kids each picked out something they wanted to give her in the thing. Me and my wife put it aside, you know, we we're better off now than we were the poor college students that only had the bread and honey to give away. And so we said, Hey, why don't we put a little bit more aside? And so we went out and we went to Costco and got the nice blankets and we went and got some coats. And, and then it was, you know, all of that was really, and we donated more and the kids donated more. So it was kind of that whole leading up to giving it was building. And then we went and got a nice Christmas bags. And so made it really nice and fun that they got a nice bag that they could carry it around and all in. And then when we went out and gave it to them, you could see that, you know, they were all excited. We had everybody start huddling around us, but we couldn't give them, you know, we didn't have enough to give everybody something, but it was just kind of fun to really, you know, take the perspective, which is where I think, you know, Christmas and the holidays should be, but actually start to, you know, give away and actually go out and give rather than just donate money. And so that was probably, I know I touched on it a bit before, but that's probably the most impactful of really doing those Christmas homeless bags, going out, giving them. And then seeing that, you know, that we are able to help people out. That's amazing, man. I love that story and love everything you're about, dude. This is so good. And although we could probably sit here and talk to you all day, we do have to continue to wrap this up. So one of our favorite parts is we jump into what we call our giving round. Just some rapid fire questions around some giving. Are you ready for them? Absolutely. Let's do it. Brag on one charity that you like. I already hit on it. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the LDS Church. That's my by far my number one charity. And they do a lot of things around the world. And they do a lot to support people. And so if I'm going to give to one area, that's always my first go-to. What would get you more excited? Donating a $1 million check or spending a week physically helping others? Do I have to give the $1 million check to one person? One organization. <laughs> All right. What would get me more excited is probably going out and spending a week. Not that I don't want to give a million dollars away. That would be pretty awesome. But if I can only give it to one organization, I'd rather I'd go spend the week. Amazing. Who inspires you with their giving? Ooh, it's a Utah one, but it's Larry Miller. He does. He did. He's now since passed on and uh, with complications. But you know, I love reading his book. He has a great book on how he did it. But he for long period of time was very business focused. I think throughout all of his life, there was a period of time where he did, he gave a lot of what he did with the business was giving back to the community. So just as a quick aside with Utah, Utah jazz is a, one of the only professional sports teams we have in Utah. We now have yeah. soccer, but for a long period of time, it was really only Utah jazz. And they were going to basically leave Utah and go somewhere else that was better for them or lucrative. And he stepped in and said, this is a pillar of the community. I don't want them to leave and I'm going to help out. And so he, really more did it as a, a way of giving now. I'm sure he made business and made money off and everything yeah. else, but it wasn't with that intent. So I like to see how he kind of originally focused on business and then transitioned to 
I'm going to use my business endeavors to really help out the community. So I like Larry Miller. Nice. What's the first thing you think of when you hear go big to give big? Very first thing I honestly think of is Elon Musk. As funny as it's funny. <laughs> no, I mean, but the, the reason I, so I like to read a lot of books, but you know, it was interesting. He, so richest man in the world, I think right now, and it, it kind of fluctuates. Yeah. But a lot of all the businesses he's made a lot of money off of, he's also done it with the altruistic. And whether you love him or hate him, and I'm not going to get into that, he's done it with an altruistic if I want to help humanity. So SpaceX was uh, one where he wanted to say, hey, we need to have a backup plan for if something goes wrong with the Earth. We want to give into batteries and we want to get into cars so that we can help or protect the Earth. We want to get into solar. We want to get into all these things. And so he is an example of someone that has made a ton of money, richest man in the world. And yet he's done it with, at least from his perspective, I want to give back. Even if you take the Twitter and how it all ended up and whether you like it, they acquired Twitter or not, how that ended up. He was saying, I want a public forum where which we can have open debate and we can have open discussion. And so I like when I say go big, you know, go big to give. It was really, he went big, he made a lot of money, and but he's also said, I'm going to build or do things where it's causes I can get behind in order so I can give back in the form that I choose to give. A mentor for sure. In one word, describe the feeling you get when you give. I'll go with happy. <laughs> Simple, happy. easy. Simple and easy, man. The final question we got for you today is, do you believe that money can buy you happiness? I'll answer it differently, which is, I think it's hard to be happy without money. <laughs> so in other words, I don't know that you have to have a a million or multi-million dollars in the bank account in order to be happy. So I, I'll take it from that perspective. But generally, if you know if you're struggling to get by and you can't make ends meet and you can't put food on the table and you're worried about getting kicked out of the apartment, you're worried about whether or not you're going to make the light bill and that, it is really hard to be happy. And it's you know it's a fact of life. And so I think there is a threshold in life where it, you have to have at least a and I don't know what that threshold is, you know, numbers wise, a sufficient level of money so where you're not having to worry about those necessities of life. Once you reach that point, money becomes much more diminishing and it's not as impactful. It doesn't give you nearly as much happiness. But I think that there has to be that threshold of money in order for you to can have more consistent happiness. Beautiful answer, man. I loved everything you said today. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Devin. It's been great. And for people that are listening, I want to give you a second to just share how they can get in touch with you or learn more about what you have or find out about your podcast. So just a second to brag on yourself. Yeah, I'll give a, a few ways to connect up with me depending on how they want to reach out. So if they want to reach out to me on socials, I know we have all the accounts for the business. The one I'm or really active more on is LinkedIn. So if they want to connect up with me on socials, LinkedIn, they go to meetmiller.com. That takes you to my profile. Second thing is if they do have questions on intellectual property, patents, trademarks, or something with the startup or small business, we offer free consultations where they can get a few questions answered. To do that, they can go to strategymeeting.com. If they just want to find out more about the law firm in general, they can go to lawwithmiller.com. And then for the podcast, if you just go Google search, the inventive journey is across everything. I think we're on all the first pages and it's out there and they want to be a guest on the podcast. They can go to inventiveguest.com. Connect with me under LinkedIn, meetmiller.com, free consultation, go to strategymeeting.com. If you want to be on the podcast, go to inventiveguest.com. Amazing, man. Well, thank you again so much for coming in and inspiring us to go bigger with our dreams and goals so that we can give bigger with our profits and just sharing so much about the IP space and what it's all about. And I think it was absolutely an amazing episode and just loved everything you brought today. So thank you again for coming in and sharing that with our audience. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you for listening to the show. If you know someone who's an example of go big to get big, we would love if you could share this with them. We want to get our message out to as many listeners as we can. And it all starts by having people like you share it with your friends. Also, if you enjoyed the show, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star review. It's a simple act of giving that is free for you, helps us grow our message, and in return, allows others to find us sooner. And until the next episode, remember, always go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profit.